Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The Atlanta Film Festival and Educational Conference begins on Thursday and runs through May 1st. This year's festival will return to indoor screenings at the Plaza Theater and Dad's Garage, as well as special outdoor screenings at the Carter Center in the Atlanta Botanical Garden. The offerings are greater in number and more diverse than ever before, as we'll hear from Executive Director Chris Escobar later this hour. Plus, A visit from music contributor Vaughn Phoenix and our series Punk Black to Go. First, the Amplify Decatur Music Festival has two missions, to entertain and give back to the community. All proceeds from the festival pour directly back into the Decatur Cooperative Ministry, which prevents and alleviates homelessness in Decatur and DeKalb County. The headliner for this year's Amplify Decatur Music Festival is the multi-Grammy award-winning guitarist and songwriter Ben Harper. He continues to refine his masterful playing and composition into a rich and vivid eclectic blend of folk traditions. Ben Harper joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you for having me on. Well, music is the family business, and not only do the Harpers have a music store, but also a storied Folk Music Center in Claremont, California. What was it like growing up around so much music? Well, it was hurdy-gurdies for breakfast and banjos for lunch and bagpipes for dinner. I love it. So to say you were exposed to many different forms of music from the time you were a toddler would not be overstating it. 
Not at all. And through those hallowed doors of the Claremont Folk Music Center have walked everyone from Pete Seeger and Reverend Gary Davis to Taj Mahal and Jackson Brown and Leonard Cohen and to get to sit as a young child and a grown adult at the hem of their garments. I just feel the privilege, the weight of the privilege only grows stronger with age. Mm. Now, you are an accomplished guitarist in many styles. I read that the first musical instrument to really grab your attention was the lap steel guitar. That's, that's right. What was it about that sound that moved you? When I was a kid, David Lindley would come into my family's music store and he would sit at the lap steel. I would say five, six, seven. And when he would pick up the lap steel guitar just to play recreationally in our family store, not only would the entire place stop, and it takes a lot to stop commerce, always has. You know, I'm also a skateboarder. It, you know, every once in a while, a skateboarder will show up at the skate park and, and we call it closing the place down. Everyone stops to watch him. I saw there's a skateboarder named Chris Jocelyn who showed up at my local skate park and everybody just stopped to watch. And it was like that with David, even as a young kid. But not only would David seemingly stop the activity within the shop, but something in my internal melodic time clock stopped as well. Everything around me stopped when he would start to play. It never let up. It never let go. The lap steel guitar is an almost mythical instrument, and its origins remain a mystery. African Americans in the South had early slide instruments like the diddly bow, and then there's the Hawaiian influence. Do you, do you feel like there's sort of a universality in the sound? Yes, not only is there a universality in the sound, but of all the sounds, to me, it is the closest sonic and melodic representation of the human voice, as I've heard on any instrument. Mm. Winter is for Lovers is your latest recording. It's entirely instrumental, and you play lap steel on that album. I was intrigued with your description of the recording as a lap steel symphony. Will you explain why, in an interview, you compared the structure of the album to the novel Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace? Oh, I'd love to. As I was trying to compose Winter is for Lovers and coming up with different ways to approach the album, I was simultaneously reading Infinite Jest. And I was a bit lost in making Winter is for Lovers. I was going to use different guitars for every different stanza. I was going between electric and acoustic. And it's not that I was hitting a wall, but it just, that concept wasn't working. And as I was reading Infinite Jest, it hit me, it something struck me to where I was so obsessed and fascinated by how he had written the book. About 200, 300 pages in, I had to go online 
to better, I didn't want to get the ending. I had to be careful. I didn't want to do too much research, but I also needed to know a little bit more about how he, com how he was composing this because it felt like there were not discordant, but there were different stories that were simultaneously being told at once, but somehow were inextricably linked. So I dug into an interview that he had done and I found that that is what they were. They were, they were, he was writing these things concurrently and at a certain point realized that they were all one. It was one story. And I was able to take that brave, brave literary principle that he had for the most part invented through Infinite Jest and apply it to Winter is for Lovers. is the overarching narrative or theme of Winter for Lovers? The theme, the overarching theme in Winter is for Lovers. You know, I'm, I have never been asked this. So I, I love that I'm answering you in a way that is absolutely on the spot. Oh, well, thank you. So if there is a theme and I'm, I will have to, think about that for a second, I would say that it is intimacy in a word. And I would say intimacy because I had produced an entire, the exact same album I had produced symphonically and with a larger production. And I scrapped it in its entirety to go back in and reimagine it with just myself and a guitar. Oh my. Was... Winter is for lovers, a COVID lockdown creation. While it sure felt like it, it absolutely was not. Winter is for lovers was completely recorded in its entirety at least six months before the pandemic. Mm. And I thought long and hard about whether or not to release it during a pandemic because I I don't want people to reflect on it as a pandemic record, but I'm, as I say this in real time, feel that I have even outgrown that. What's wrong with having a pandemic? What's wrong with having put out a record? Though people can associate it to that time, like, oh my God, when I hear this, I think about being locked down. But if it was even a single solitary moment of solace and comfort for one person in that time, Maybe that's one of the things that they can look back on with fond memories instead of something otherwise. Yes. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. My guest is the acclaimed guitarist and songwriter Ben Harper. The different tracks on the album refer to geographical places. How do you invoke a special environment through the music? You know, full disclosure, those titles, while they did end up working out, were for the record company. Oh. Yeah, they, they weren't excited. It was supposed to be released as one 32-minute piece. And 
I have to take, I have to hold up my hand and be responsible for my role in the choir here, but I was talked into allowing them to be broken up for potential playlisting. And hopefully that will be the final decision I ever make as far as uh, kowtowing to the commerce component when it comes to the creative. Knock on wood, that's the final time I'll need to learn that lesson. Yeah. But because I agreed to do that, I decided to give the each individual movement a title to the place it was most connected to geographically. Many of the songs were actually written in the places of the names I gave them. of your bucket list items was to make an album with your mother, yes. Ellen. Yes. In 2014, I believe it was, you released an album together titled Childhood Home. Would you describe that experience creating songs together with your mom? Creating songs with my mom not, not only creating them, but recording them, producing them, being able to sit at the table with my mom in a major record company and discuss strategy. It almost took until that time for me to grow up. It was very much a recognition of my mom's struggle, my own childhood struggles with identity, you know, my mom and my family, we've all been through so much together and it was, it cleaned the slate. It hit reset uh, on an emotional level for my mom and I in a way that I don't think anything else could have done. A house is a home, even when it's dark. Even when the grass is overgrown in the yard. Even when the dog is too old to bark. And when you're sitting at the table trying not to start A house is a home Even when we've up and gone Even when you're there alone A house, a house is a home So how does it feel to listen back or sing those songs together eight years later? You know, I actually miss singing with her. We'll have to get her out on the road again because we only pulled <laughs> around that record once. And of all the people I have sung with, and that would range from Natalie Maines to Ricky Lee Jones, Eddie Vedder, and countless others, singing with my mom is the number one most comfortable music experience I've ever had. Because she knew, she knows her, she knows, it's like, okay, are you taking the uh, the harmony, the third, the fifth, who's got the melody, who's got the harmony, and go. Because we have, we have been singing together since I was born. Which songs will you perform at the Amplify Decatur Music Festival, do you know? 
I haven't made the set yet, but it will dive deep into the catalog. It will be with the newly reformed Innocent Criminals. I say newly reformed because we lost our beloved bass player, Juan Nelson, of 30 years. Oh, Not so through COVID, but during COVID. So we are newly reformed, but with three of the four original members. And we'll be digging deep into the catalog and also be presenting at least a track or two from our new upcoming record this year, which is called Bloodline Maintenance. Hmm. What is it like performing music from your instrumental album, live on tour it's been a thrill i just played a benefit in new york you know i've been playing it online of course obviously when and where i could during the pandemic mm -hmm. but the first time i really got out and played it was recently in well no i had played a guitar festival in in champaign illinois and that was a wonderfully exciting but also nerve-wracking it was the first time playing post-pandemic or but that was a problem it wasn't really post-pandemic because by the time the show happened we were going back into lockdown it was nerve-wracking but I recently played it at the Love Rocks show at the Beacon in New York the benefit concert getting to play Winner is for Lovers live felt like it was being presented in the way that it was born to be played because it's recorded live me sitting down playing guitar under a microphone so to get to actually do that again what in, in an era that feels post-pandemic, felt like it had finally arrived at where it was destined to, to get to. You have a reputation for supporting many activist causes, which range from ocean conservation and food insecurity to the Tony Hawk Foundation, which builds skate parks and supports kids' charities. How has your platform as a musician, helped you amplify those causes? Music has provided a karmic accelerator, so to speak, for me to be able to contribute to not only the causes, but the people who are on the front lines of those causes. And that does range from uh, supporting Julia Butterfly Hill when she lived in the 150-foot redwood tree in Northern California and supporting her and climbing up all the, I got to climb up into the tree and spend oh time with Julia. And that was way back in the early nineties, ranging from that to the Lyft Foundation who worked tirelessly to bring people further away from the edge of poverty and all in between. And music I think has provided me a post artistic platform in the near future for me to commit my life to. I don't see myself touring that much longer, really. I, I, I love it and I still feel like every show is my first, but when I do stop, I wanna stop with that feeling. I don't wanna run to exhaustion. I'd like to step away from touring and, and creative life in a way that I can feel cleansed by it. And when I do that, I do look to step into a more active role, socio-culturally, socio-politically. Ben Harper, multi-Grammy award-winning songwriter and guitarist. He's headlining the Amplified Decatur Music Festival on the Decatur Square, Friday and Saturday, April 22nd and 23rd. You can find out more about the festival on our website, 
WABE.org. In a moment, Plaza Theater owner and Atlanta Film Festival executive director Chris Escobar. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Christopher Escobar, the executive director of the Atlanta Film Festival, has been owner of the Plaza Theater since 2017. The Atlanta Film Festival, ATLFF, is also a partner of the Plaza Theater, with many of the films being shown on the big screen there. The film festival and educational conference will take place April 21st through Sunday, May 1st. Chris Escobar joins me now via Zoom to talk about this year's diverse lineup. Chris, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me again. After two years of virtual screenings with some in-person showings last year, this year's festival will offer audiences all kinds of viewing experiences, different platforms. Why did you want to keep this a hybrid festival? You know, this is something that we did because we had to, but it offers things that, you know, we could do that maybe we hadn't been able to or thought of or were sure it was going to work. And so, you know, being able to continue to offer the options of, yeah, we definitely want to, you know, bring back the experiences that have not been realistic to have the last couple of years, right? More of the in-person screenings inside, indoors, more of the social events, having people come in person for the conference so that you can, you know, not just hear from these people in person, but meet them. Definitely, we want to bring that back. But, you know, having and, and retaining some of, you know, even to a limited basis, the outdoor experience and being able to have some screenings under the stars, uh, being able to make the screenings and the programming accessible to people who can't come to Atlanta or people who maybe for one reason or another can't leave their homes. These are things where as long as we can continue to find ways to balance it, can kind of coexist and, and meet people in all sorts of ways. And so it means that we're going to be screening online in home we're going to be screening outdoors and we're going to be screening in theater and i honestly see those three modes as being part of the film festival experience for you know all the years to come 
hopefully the next 46 years. But I think they will continue to evolve. I think we'll always continue to prioritize and, and focus around the in-person you know, experience that you can't download or replicate, that it's, it's an unforgettable experience, right? I think we will find more ways to make connecting from home more exciting and lively, and then finding more ways to be able to offer more bigger public, uh, hopefully one day free screenings. I'd love to be able to bring back you know, screen on the green and things like that and make that as part of the festival and be able to have big outdoor you know, lawn screenings and stuff like that, that Atlanta, you know, really a lot of people, you know, we miss. So even if these things will evolve or maybe change scales, I, I see these as being three very different important parts of how we ultimately bring Atlanta together and celebrate the stories told through these moving images. And, and we're lucky enough to be able to be about the art form, not about the subject. And so we're able to use that openness and that flexibility to partner with a variety of people in a number of ways to not only share these incredible stories, but these incredible storytellers. And then if they can connect to ways, to the places and missions of unique places that are essential to Atlanta and unique here in Atlanta, then all the better. I know diversity is central to your mission. And at this year's Atlanta Film Festival, 74% of the films are directed by filmmakers who identify as female or non-binary and or are black, indigenous, or people of color, BIPOC. How does this compare with previous years? It's relatively in line. We've been generally very lucky to have a really, really rich and diverse pool of submissions to choose from. So we have, we're one of the 10 most competitive film festivals in the world, meaning, you know, of the 4,000 plus film festivals worldwide, there's only about 10 of us that get the volume of submissions that the Atlanta Film Festival does. So for one, then because we have been diverse and inclusive from the beginning of our of our creation the first film festival 1977 we've been signaling that we want stories by women by people of color by the lgbtq community by filmmakers from the south you know we've been signaling that for decades that message is being better heard more and more these last few years and there is better access to a diverse pool of filmmakers to make these stories more and more these last few years. And so we've, we've been very lucky that that's at least having that element has been easier for us than I think, you know, some of the other major film festivals around the country and things like that. And so while we have been comparatively more diverse than a lot of our, our, our national counterparts, what has changed over the last 10 years or so is that it's been, it's gone from something that has just kind of naturally been a part of our programming to something we are more carefully measuring and making sure that we are, uh, if we are Atlanta's film festival, we are reflecting Atlanta and that, and that we need to make sure that we are as diverse or even more diverse in all of the different ways that that means as our, as our community is. The festival is screening nearly 150 films from the nearly 10,000 submissions. I can't imagine how you and your team weed through all of those films to select. Can you tell us briefly about the selection process? 
yeah, we're going to have 28 feature films, 98 short films, 27 creative media selections. You know, so that's just right under 150 films from 33 different countries out of over 10,000. So if you just sort of do the math and figure, okay, well then, so then just under 2% of the films that get submitted get into the Atlanta Film Festival. That's a more competitive rate than Harvard or Yale or <laughs> it's, it's kind of crazy if you think about it in that in that regard. But yeah, we we have an incredibly hardworking year-round programming team. We've also added a substantially large contract programming team that that is, you know, from our, both from our community and from around the world. And then we've also been lucky enough to have the help of a volunteer screening committee that is largely from people from Metro Atlanta that are also helping provide feedback and things like that. Because these films are seen between two and five times, typically, before a final decision is made. You've narrowed it down to six for us, three of which are international. Breakwaters, a film from Turkey. Yeah, that's, that's a really gorgeous film. One of the interesting things is a lot of times some of these films will be, frankly, rather simple stories but told in really unique circumstances and rather unique methods. And, and the director, who's also the screenwriter, uh, Cem Demiria, it was made in Turkey, but it's a Turkish and UK co-production. It's a simple story of a young fisherman who works with you know, family members and, and, and close friends, but is uh, largely undervalued, underestimated, and is able to make a rather significant discovery. And there ends up being tension between family members that is on par of any of the you know, great, great dramas for something so simple as you know, having discovered a harvest of lobsters and, and keeping that secret to himself. And, and the film is such an incredible job of evoking the sense of what it's like to be there, evoking the sense of tension, uh, showing the, the, the kind of the beauty of, of that landscape that they're in, and also in some ways how that beauty and landscape can be rather trapping or limiting. And so who is doing the trapping or who is being trapped? You know, there's all kinds of really interesting concepts and, and, and things that the film kind of suggests or explores. Uh, so that's a fantastic film we're excited to have. Soul of a Beast is a multinational production. Why did you recommend this film? So Soul of the Beast is another very different, very thought-provocative film. This, this comes out of Switzerland, although it's in Swiss, German, French, Japanese, there's even actually a little Spanish in there. It's a rather international appealing film. Again, not a story plot-wise that is the most jarring or different, right? We have a father, albeit a rather young father, who is struggling with you know, this going from being a father, but still, you know, having his own like kind of selfish interests as well. It's in a rather surrealist backdrop of what's happening in their town when a few, this is in Zurich, when a few animals escape the zoo. And so there starts to be uh, really fascinating kind of parallels between what he's experiencing and what those animals have or could be experiencing. And then in the meantime, he's also falling in love with the girlfriend of his best friend, um, which is an interesting position for 
for the protagonist of a film to be doing something that isn't always the most admirable thing. <laughs> and, and so there's lots of struggles of the heart and struggles of, of kind of these, these different roles in his life and struggles with the other people in his life. So there's a lot of things going on. Rather simple story if you were to just sit here and plot it out. But the way it's told is so psychological. The way it's told, particularly how the cinematography, you know, works in line with the performance of the actors and how they're not rooting necessarily everything that happens in the movie purely to reality. So it's a rather unique way of storytelling. And it's also part of why this film is in competition for a cinematography award. Uh, and I see the next narrative film, Do Not Hesitate, from the Netherlands, also it's in competition for cinematography. This looks very intense. Yeah. Well, we've got, you know, this is soldiers who are who are left to guard a military vehicle, you know, by themselves, you know, and ends up kind of creating a rather tense situation. And, and then they encounter this young boy and it's kind of the, the cross of their training with their humanity. And it's it's another really incredible film. You know, and this is the thing that's also you know fascinating about these is that there can be you can liken from a plot standpoint and a story standpoint so many of the films we have to films that people have seen but because they're told by people from different communities and different countries and in ways where they are willing to break conventions it, it kind of adds a whole new life and a whole new spin and a whole new take and a whole new way to meditate on these stories and these themes and that's one of the important roles that not only our film festival, really any film festival has, is that it's not, you know, most of what we have in multiplexes and in cinemas are the things that are only going to be very commercially marketable, right? And things that are easy to sell. And, and inherently and by design, film festivals serve a really important role of spotlighting the stories and by storytellers that are not an easy sell and are not famous faces and are not necessarily sexy, so to speak, right? But are really important, are really provocative, are really emotional, are really powerful. And so that's kind of one of the interesting things we find is we have these films from all over the world is that it can be a very different take on a very familiar premise that ends up arriving at a very different conclusion. If you are just tuning in, this is City Light on WABE. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Chris Escobar, the executive director of the Atlanta Film Festival and owner of the historic Plaza Theater, a documentary that sounds most compelling is After Sherman. Oh, yeah. I, I don't want to miss this one. Yeah, this is a really powerful film. Starts with a simple premise filmmaker kind of going back to his home roots uh, in South Carolina and wanting to see kind of what and how and why is this place different and what makes it special and what makes it what it is today. And you end up uncovering and exploring and getting to see the incredible rich history of this, you know, community and the relation to Mother, the Mother Emanuel Church at that area and, and really the churches at large in this community and ends up being a really great vehicle for looking at African-American history, particularly in the South. When you say this community, it's the Gullah Geechee community, correct? Yeah, so this is coastal South Carolina, yeah. Okay. And so, you know, it, it, it 
fully focuses on the on the Gullah Geechee uh, community, you know, off the coast of South Carolina, and and is looks back to history prior to the Civil War, but is kind of looking at how that history still lives today. And a lot of times, when someone hears that, they might expect, oh, this is only a story of of pain or suffering. But no, it's also a story of incredible perseverance and incredible heritage, community heritage, and the richness of not only culturally from a music or a spiritual standpoint, but also how that directly ties in with with farming and directly ties in with food. I mean, it's just such a rounded exploration of the culture there. And then, of course, that is not devoid or disconnected from, you know, pain from the past, you know, and transcending that pain and recognizing it. And it's just such such an incredible documentary. That thread runs through another documentary you've recommended, Out of the Muck. Yeah. It's described as a portrait of a community that resists despair with love while forging its own narrative of Black achievement. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say if after Sherman takes a sort of a deeper, more historical look, you know, say maybe over the span of 200 years and how that still translates today, out of the muck, is a, a little bit more contemporary in that regard, is maybe especially looking at the last, say, 50 years. But again, what these two share is, first of all, aside from being by and about communities of color, it's also looking at what is distinct about these communities, what has contributed to making those distinct, and then also kind of sharing the victories and sharing the, the richness and going deeper than some people might realize. As you know, when my family moved us up north, they used to always bring us down here so we could be close to to our family and our roots. I can go to Hollywood and they'll be like, well, Bridget, where are you from? I'm from Pahokee, 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 Florida, the muck. I'm a muck baby, I'm, you know, and I don't know. It's just something that's in us. It's a human element that a lot of people don't understand. You know what I mean? All of us are ambitious, compassionate. We all that, but we just have to really understand that and be there for the next person, have the empathy. And Pokey gave me that, man, because you're going to have to rely on the next person growing up around you. So at this point in time, you know, I want to, wherever he's at, you know, wherever the ancestors are at, I want to make them proud by telling the story and telling the history of our family and our roots before it's erased. Oh, the muck will grow anything. <laughs> and, and what I love, particularly with a film like Out of the Muck, is the relation that, uh, and so the muck is in reference to physically the land. This is in the peripheral of, of Lake Okeechobee in, in the uh, southern part of central Florida. And so the, the relation that the characters that we follow through the film and they represent a lot of the people that have been in the community there at large, how they identify with the water and with the richness of the dirt. And, and, and so the muck, which is the nickname of the areas is because it's an incredibly nutrient rich dirt because of its you know, connection you know, to the lake there and that so many crops and things like that are able to grow. 
and how these uh, select families that the film focuses on are able to live their lives in ways that kind of navigates old ways of living and new ways of living, finding the positive, celebrating, encouraging their community to continue to improve while celebrating the things that exist now and have existed and make it special. I mean, it's just, it's such a beautiful film. People will, will leave that watching that film with such an appreciation, not only for that very specific part of Florida that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise thought of or known, but also it makes us kind of think about how do we, where we live, how do we, how are we influenced by the actual land? How do we, how does that change or not change through progress and things like that? I mean, it's, I think it's a phenomenal look. What does the documentary Boycott bring into perspective? Yeah. So Boycott is a, is a very different kind of documentary, whereas it, say the last two we've talked about are, are rather emotional and very family-oriented and, and very history-oriented. Boycott is, is a little bit more, uh, less emotional, more cerebral, and is an incredible look at something that's been happening in the country where there is, you know, there are different sets of orchestrated legislation. And in some cases, what Boycott focuses on is legislation that is done on the state levels that while its, its intention is to focus on a very specific subject, in this case, basically disallowing uh, any, any contractors, employees, or anything, anyone who would receive any state funds from boycotting Israel, even though that might have nothing to do with the nature of their contract or anything like that, you know, specifically looks at that one issue. And then it, it focuses on these different individuals that are in different states around the country and in cases versus their states where they have been terminated or their contracts have been terminated, things like that, that don't actually necessarily even care about actually boycotting Israel. But the premise that the idea that that a state government can say, if you're going to do business with us, you need to surrender this element of your First Amendment rights, which is a, and so that's ultimately what the whole point of this documentary tries to kind of open that discussion for is, you know, are, are we saying that the First Amendment right is a sacred right given to us by the Constitution, unless you're doing business with the state, in which case then you don't get to actually have a First Amendment right for things that elected officials choose. So that's an actually a very fascinating discussion of something that's happening in the courts and in our state legislatures, and then kind of opens up the nuance to that overall conversation. The Creative Conference is ATLFF's educational programming extension. What is this year's focus? Yeah. So first, much like always, it it's a conference that focuses on the art, craft, and business of film and television. So this year, we are doing it in, in two modes, uh, which we've never been able to do. It's normally only been in person. The last two years, it's only been virtual. So we're very excited that this year will be both virtual and in person. And I would say one of the things that makes it different for this year, aside from that, is that we're going to also have kind of some special opportunities that focus in and around screenwriting. Not to say the whole conference is going to be focused on that, but we're going to have some really incredible gems for anyone who's interested in screenwriting uh, and more on that art and that craft and the business of it. Much like our film programming, we're generally about 50-50 male-female. You know, we're generally about three quarters of our, of our panelists and experts are BIPOC. 
But the interesting thing that we're finding is that having these different modes to have these conversations and have these people share their expertise is that it's allowing us to tailor the conversation to the moment. So for instance, the, one of the amazing things about the virtual conversations is that they're not only you know, generally focused with one or two people, but, but kind of moderated and led by you know, another person who's not just like a, a moderator, but is, is also someone who shares and has an experience in that craft. And so for anyone, for instance, who, who watches like the variety actors on actors or even more you know there's a series i love that jerry seinfeld does the comedians in cars getting coffee oh i love that too yeah yeah so part of what makes these special isn't just funny people but it's funny people having a private intimate conversation by other funny people right or in the case of actors on actors like people who who also know what that's like that creates a different conversation and gives us as the viewer a very different experience of getting to see these two people who, who equally know what they're talking about, being able to dive into deep on a subject and, and having it within the privacy of a one-on-one conversation allows for some vulnerability, some honesty, some, you know, some candor that might not be present in something where the audience is visibly present. And so we have some incredible conversations, one being with Takashi Dozier, who's a, you know, an Atlanta kind of grown filmmaker who is now doing, you know, big national things, talking with his mentee, Jeremy Tao. So these are both, you know, Asian American creatives who, who do screenwriting, who do a variety of tasks, you know, talking about that art, craft, and business. We have another incredible session on creating stories and opportunities for a female, brown, and Muslim community. You know, so it's not just being in one of these underrepresented groups is tough, and here's why, but also, like, here's the wins, here's the successes, here's the models to, to be able to point to to be able to create more opportunities, you know? So, so those are just a couple examples, you know, with the screenwriting focus of what we're doing virtually. And then in person, we have some incredible opportunities, not only to hear from people and their expertise, but to do the thing that's really only best done in person, be able to meet some of these people. And so if you're somebody who's interested in either cinematography and using actual celluloid film, if you're interested in the producing more specifically in the like budgeting, scheduling, production management, or you're interested on the kind of actor talent side for non-traditional things, even to like gaming or influencers, you know, that's, we're we're able to bring expertise from people like, in companies like People Store and like uh, media services and like um, Kodak, for instance, and be able to not only hear from these people, but actually get to meet them and meet the other people in the room. And so, you know, having these different modes gives us the opportunity to kind of have our cake and eat it too. Chris Escobar, the executive director of the Atlanta Film Festival and owner of the Plaza Theater. The festival takes place April 21st through May 1st. You can find more information about the lineup on our website, wabe.org. Coming up, music contributor Vaughn Phoenix and our series, Punk Black To Go. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. 
It's time to check in with City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. Vaughn is the president and co-founder of Atlanta's cultural and media phenomenon Punk Black, and he joins us monthly to highlight local artists of color performing in a variety of musical arenas, many of which break stereotypes and expectations. Here's Vaughn Phoenix with this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. Greetings, my friends. I'm City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix, and this is Punk Black To Go. For the unfamiliar, Punk Black is a media network that features people of color in the music, art, and cosplay communities. Each month, I'll be joining the City Lights team to share music that I love from the Punk Black scene, so without further ado, here are a few bands you need to listen to this month. First up, we have 16 Bullets. I know we've covered them before, but... Besides being completely deserving of a mention for all episodes for all time, they have a new single out. It's called Way of the Madman, and it hits all the bells of politics, relatability, and straight-up dopeness. But I know you'll decide that for yourself, so here's a sample of Way of the Madman. Why the coverage so selective what they show to us? The fake news that you never trust. Lawyers got money in the country, keep you powered up. Data's in the corner of the class, just another dot. Hood high school police, metal detectors, searches every morning. Hello, Ward, now my principal. Hidden secretary, is she married to a counselor? Tricky with some students, it's the ones who we prove. That was a sample of Way of the Madman by 16 Bullets. They're on Instagram at 16 Bullets. That's S-I-X-T-E-E-N Bullets. Next up, we have Pleasure Venom. This band is amazing. They're one of those bands you can see online, live, on Mars, in a car with some friends, or maybe even your parents, you know, if they're groovy enough. They're honestly like a dope seasoning you can pair with anything. I heard them online first, then at South by Southwest, and I can tell you honestly... I was blown away each time. I'm 100% that you'll be blown away too, so here's a sample of their song, Hive. Hive by Pleasure Venom. They're on Instagram at Pleasure Venom, spelled exactly how it sounds, but you know, if you're like me and you just want to double check, is P L E A S U R E Venom. Pleasure Venom. Last up, I have a little uh, nepotism for you. Yep, it's my band, Howling Star. We've been on the scene for more time than I'd honestly like to admit, but we've done some pretty groovy things. Um, Punk Black itself was started by members of Howling Star, and we've gone on to do more dope things over the years, like playing multiple fests, you know, traveling the U.S., and we've even played South by Southwest recently. This song is one of our singles, and I hope you dig it, but you know, I sort of know you will. It's called Tribe. Star cities ours, we are many, we are all, and all is in me. When they tell you love is lust, up and down and all is lost. When you see through all their lies, that just means you're one of us. We are the one thing. 
That was a sample of Try by Howling Star. Howling Star can be found on Instagram at howling.star. That's H-O-W-L-I-N-G dot star. Well, my friends, that's all I have for you this month. Thank you so much for listening. More information about the bands mentioned today is available on wab.org slash citylights and, of course, punkblock.com. For WAB City Lights, I'm Vaughn Phoenix. Please be safe out there and be kind to each other. Music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. More information about the bands he mentioned today is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll celebrate Arabia Mountain's 50th anniversary with the preserve manager and food forager Robert Astroff. City Light's senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzis. And we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.